use this time this morning to teach us and to encourage us and to strengthen us so that we may not only praise you on these special times of year, but throughout the year and be an ambassador in, in full strength. And lead it, let us see not only in the story of Abraham, but in the story of Lot, how we can both follow and also fall away so that we might be encouraged to do one and, and warned against the other. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. You know, this is a good time of year for people to do a lot of things that they don't do the rest of the year. Just like New Year's always brings resolutions for some. When you really think about it, they could do that any day of the year. But for some reason, we only do it once a year for some of us. And Christmas is another season in which we often see people doing things they don't do other times of the year. In family settings, sometimes the idea of giving a bunch of gifts to your children is a wonderful chance to teach them some lessons about the value of things, also the, the importance of being grateful and so on. Uh, there was a father who had a couple of twin boys and that father had a concern out of how he saw his twins developing in their maturity and, and in the way they saw things in life and in the perspective they brought to life. And these two boys had an interesting quality about them. They were almost exactly opposite in their natures. If one thought it was too hot, the other thought it was too cold. If one said the TV was too loud, the other one said to turn it down. They were opposite in one particular way more than anything else. One of these boys was an eternal optimist. Never saw anything but the good side of life, which is a nice trait, but it has its drawbacks because in the fact that that boy was always willing to see the good and never willing to recognize that there was anything wrong, he was blind to his own faults. He never could appreciate his own weaknesses. And then the other son, for his part, he was the eternal pessimist. Nothing was ever good enough. Nothing was ever going to work out right. He never saw the joy and grace in life. And so to teach these boys a lesson at Christmas time, the father had a great idea. He decided he would give each child an appreciation for what the other child had in his nature, and hopefully he would create some balance here. So as he prepared to give gifts to his children, he took all the toys, all the gifts that were really intended for both children, and put them in the room of the child who was the eternal pessimist. And then for his eternally optimistic son, he came up with the novel idea of, of going to the garden store and getting a couple of wheelbarrows full of manure, and dumping the manure in the room of the child that had the eternally optimistic point of view. So as these children walk into the rooms, he was interested to see how their perspectives might change. So on the night that this occurred, the pessimist walked into the room, and the father came by a few minutes later to see the reaction, and he's sitting in the middle of his room crying. And the father is beside himself, and he asks his son, why are you crying? And the son says, well, because my friends are going to be jealous over all of these gifts and I'll have to read through the instructions on how to use all these things and it'll need batteries and they'll probably break. And he was just in wallowing in self-pity. The father threw his hands up in the air and walked off. He didn't know what to say. Next door was the optimist in his room. The father walks in, not sure what he'll find, and there he sees his son dancing for joy on top of the manure pile. And the father looked at him and said, what are you so happy about? And the son said, there's got to be a pony in here somewhere. <laughs> you know, before we get into the story of Lot, I just want you to know that there aren't many pastors that can work manure into their Sunday sermon. <laughs> they don't remain in the role long, right, after they do that. Well, the reason I gave that story, it does fit to some degree into our story of Lot this morning because we are back in at this point in the moment of the story where Lot was in the 
street in front of his home trying to fend off hostile crowds who wanted to break through the door and molest the men that had come to visit him. Somehow it's our job to find a pony in this story. Somewhere in this account, something good has got to come out of what God has going on in this situation. Because at the heart of it all is a man Lot, the nephew of Abraham, who the New Testament tells us definitively is a righteous man. But oh, are his circumstances not what they should be. What is God at work doing here that is good? How does he turn this to good? And let's begin by remembering what Abraham himself prayed for in the case of his nephew Lot. Abraham asked the Lord to spare this city if ten righteous were found in this city. The Lord agreed, but we've been left wondering ever since then, what will happen to Lot and his family if there aren't ten righteous in the city? And at first he would seem that there would be at least ten, that that's an easy number to hit. You could count up just four right away. Lot, his wife, his two daughters, you're almost halfway there. In fact, if you take their prospective husbands-to-be, the daughters were engaged. If we take those two, you're up to, to six now. You're over halfway, assuming that, that Lot has found godly men for his daughters. But will there be ten? And if ten are not found, is God going to hold Abraham to the original bargain? Is he going to say to Abraham, well, sorry, hey, you said ten. There aren't ten. Too bad. Lot's history. And if he were to do that, what kind of lesson is God teaching Abraham about his character and his nature? It seems as though God has agreed to something that really isn't what God is prepared to do, while Abraham asks for something which isn't really what he wants. How is this going to turn out? And then secondly, we have the question of the power of prayer to influence God in the course of these events. You know, Sodom and Gomorrah are certainly deserving of judgment. No one's going to dispute that. God has to judge them for their sin if he is to be a righteous judge. But then God agreed to this request from Abraham to spare the city. That seems to leave the city's fate in doubt, right? It's almost as if now there's uncertainty concerning God's course of action. He might. He might not. It depends. Is that how God works? Is that how prayer works? How does Abraham's prayer work side by side with God's sovereignty and with his unchanging nature and with the fact that Scripture tells us he does not change his mind for he is not like a man that he should change his mind? Is Abraham the one determining the outcome here for Sodom and Gomorrah? Is his prayer what's really driving the outcome or not? That's another question to consider. And then finally, as we go back into the text in verse 9 today, we have to remember that this account, this story of Lot and Abraham, is also providing this really clear, stunning picture of God's plan for a future judgment on the earth. That's also being told here, a second story, if you will. And we observed this in earlier chapters. Abraham seen as to represent the Hebrews, the Jewish people, while his believing nephew is, is a picture of Gentile believers, non-Hebrew believers, and how the Gentile believer is is being blessed by his association with the Hebrew. There's a picture in that for us of how God is at work in the world around us. Let's go to verse 9, pick up where we left off there, and see what happens now that Lot is standing out in front of this hostile crowd after he's told them now that he will not give them the visitors, but he offers them his daughters, as hard as that was to believe. Now here's what happens next, verse 9. But they said, stand aside. Furthermore, they said, This one came in as an alien and already he's acting like a judge. Now, we will treat you worse than them. So they pressed hard against Lot and came near to break the door. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. They struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness 
both small and great, so that they wearied themselves trying to find the doorway. Then the two men said to Lot, Whom else have you here? A son-in-law, your sons, your daughters, and whomever you have in the city. Bring them out of this place. For we are about to destroy this place, because their outcry has become so great before the Lord that the Lord has sent us to destroy it. Well, here's the turning point for Lot and his family. In last week's reading, we ended actually in verse 9. I reread it here again just to give us a little context. You see that Lot has gone out to defend his guests. They now threaten to accost him. In fact, look at, looking at the tone of their statements here, it would seem to me to suggest that this so far has never happened a lot. He has so far avoided this kind of mistreatment somehow. But now they've decided they've had enough of him and they're ready to take advantage of him. So this is now where he has run out of an opportunity. His time in the city is over. If this is now where the city stands for him and for his family, how could he ever feel safe here again? So the angels, and now Moses, you notice, is still calling them men, but we know them to be angels. They open the door, they reach out, they grab Lot, they rescue him basically at the last minute, throw him back into the home and shut the door behind him. The word shut in Hebrew literally means lock. They lock the door. Finally, in verse 11, we read that the supernatural power of angels is finally revealed because they strike the crowd with a blindness of some kind. The word for blindness is a unique Hebrew word. It's only used one other time in the entire Old Testament, also in the context of angels doing something to men. So it is a representation of angelic power. It's a very unique word. It literally means to cause confusion, such as mental confusion. But in this case, it's some kind of dazed mental state combined with a lack of vision. It's not merely that they're blind. But notice what these men do now. After the angels reveal themselves to be angelic, I mean, if they haven't done so already, it's obvious to, to anyone now that they are. They strike them in with this blindness. What does this depraved crowd do after they've been struck supernaturally with blindness? You might think that they would just suddenly forget what they were there for and their mind would turn to, what happened? to the shock of it all, to the immediacy of it, and they'd start to think through, who did this to me and how does something like this happen? Right, The things we would do. But look what they do. They continue searching for the doorway. They are so depraved, so single-minded in their depravity that they're still focused on what they came to do despite the fact they've just been crippled by a supernatural plague. Is there any doubt that these men are so utterly depraved they deserve God's judgment? Now, at this point in the story, as I said a moment ago, everything takes a really sharp turn. What was at first a fact-finding tour, an investigation, now it's about getting out of the city. The angels are now focused on destroying the city. But what's interesting to me is they have not taken a census of the city. There's no indication they walked house to house counting up for ten righteous. They've gone to Lot's home had one experience with one crowd, but for them, the decision is made. It is time for the destruction to begin. In fact, they say something here very revealing. They state plainly, the Lord has sent us to destroy the city. What was their mission? I think that statement means they came into the city with this mission from moment one. They did not come in with the mission to find ten righteous, if that were possible. They came in with the mission to destroy the city. So it wasn't necessary for them to seek for the ten righteous. That is not to say that God is somehow not honoring his statements to Abraham. 
it is only to remind us that God is omniscient and knew beforehand altogether who was righteous and who was not. He agreed to something that Abraham placed before him, and he did so with good faith. But that doesn't mean he didn't already know how it was going to turn out. And the angels themselves seem to know there is no point in our searching. They tell Lot, time has come, get your family out, get anyone you have in your family, and leave this place now. We know from this text, from later in this same chapter, that he has two daughters and he has a wife, but the daughters are betrothed. Now, betrothal, you may remember from when we looked at this earlier in this, uh, in this book, but betrothal means literally they're engaged. But in the way engagement was done in the ancient world in this day and age, it was like you were married. You could not unbetroth somebody without a divorce. So though the marriage has not been consummated, they haven't gone through the ceremony, nonetheless, they are married for the most part. They're just not living together yet. So the daughters still live at home. The sons-in-law-to-be are still living in their homes. And... These angels say, you need to go grab them and anyone else you have that needs to be evacuated and get them out of the city. So what kind of future awaits this family in Sodom? If Abraham has two daughters who are betrothed to two men, Sodomites, the kind of men who come outside a house and demand to have entry into that home so they can rape the two men, that's who he's found as wives for his daughters? So what kind of future does this family have in Sodom? Lot's decision to live in this city and to raise his kids in this city has done a lot of damage to him and his family already. That much is obvious. But what would have happened had he stayed even longer if his family had been allowed to exist in this city for decades to come? This is God's grace that now is the time to remove this family. So why do the angels tell Lot to get your family out of the city? In fact, why is Lot being given any warning at all? In light of the way the prayer of Abraham was spoken, if there are not ten righteous in this city, then there is no basis on which Abraham should expect Lot to be rescued, is there? I mean, the bargain was the bargain. There aren't ten, ergo, city destroyed. And with it, anyone who's in it. Why are the angels giving Lot this extra chance? Well, we're watching the Lord at work here through his angels to bring grace to his children by faith. It's just that simple. And he's working through angels to do it because the Bible tells us the angels, one of their roles is as ministering spirits to the believer. Hebrews tells us that in chapter one, at the very end of chapter one, verse 14, the writer asks, are not all angels ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? This time of year is especially prone to displays of angels on trees and elsewhere, and that's fine. But throughout the year, there's a certain subculture of angel interest, some in the church, some outside the church. That's okay, but we need to be careful about making them into something they're not. They exist. They are servants of God, and they are powerful beings. They minister to the saints, to us. They serve God in that respect. They are not to be manipulated or trivialized. We do not have control over them. They are not a replacement for Christ or for the Father. In other words, we don't appeal to them. We don't pray to them. We don't see them in that way. Have you ever noticed in Scripture, anytime an angel would appear before men and men would bow down or appear to worship the angel, the response of the angel is, get up. Don't worship me. You need to worship God. 
These angels, appearing as men, are in the role here of serving God's interests toward the needs of the saints. We wonder back in chapter 18 why the Lord was engaged in this fact-finding thing at all. Why did he even need to send angels down a lot and into Sodom to find out if there were ten righteous? He already knew the answer, right? Back when we looked at that, we said it was part of God's plan to teach Abraham about himself. And it was an opportunity for God to invite Abraham into that work. So it's really all staged for Abraham's benefit. So God appears with his angels before Abraham, determined to bring judgment. He's already told the angels, you're going down there to bring judgment. The judgment is deserved. The decision is made. And he reveals that to Abraham. But only in a cloaked way, only in a, in a vague way, so that Abraham gets engaged and Abraham thinks about it. And as the plan is unfolded, he begins to recognize the urgency and the, the jeopardy that his nephew is in. And so he appeals to God and prays to God. That was the purpose. The purpose wasn't that God needed Abraham's help to deal with the situation in Sodom and Gomorrah. He had that under control. He needed Abraham to get engaged with him so that Abraham could learn something in the process. Abraham used imperfect words. He had the right desires in his heart, but couldn't put them in words the right way. It makes no difference, though, because the Lord knew his heart. Just as Jesus himself said in Matthew 6, 8, he said, Do not be like those who pray in the street corners. He said, For your Father knows what you need before you ask. But that doesn't stop God saying, Pray. Now you have these angels standing in Sodom, even though they have no reason to be there, at least in terms of the investigation, but their true function, their true reason for even coming in the form of men and taking the time they took is now to be revealed as they ministered a lot in his family. Look at verse 14. Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law who were to marry his daughters. And he said, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord will destroy the city. But he appeared to his sons-in-law to be jesting. When morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you will be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he hesitated. So the men seized his hand and the hand of his wife and the hands of his two daughters, for the compassion of the Lord was upon him, and they brought him out and put him outside the city. Lot gets this warning. And he is so convinced, he now sees that these angels are supernatural. He saw the blindness, he saw their work, he understands who they are, so he takes their word as truth, and he understands the, the jeopardy. So he calls upon his family members. At this point, the only family members that aren't in his home are these two sons-in-law. So he goes to their home, wherever they are, and he warns them. And as he delivers this truth, the sons-in-law, hearing it, assume he's just joking. He's only joking. How sad is that? How sad a commentary is that on the situation that Lot is in? Remember back in 18, we considered what it must have said about Lot's testimony that Uncle Abraham was feeling the need to bargain down from 50 all the way to 10. Do you remember that? We said that he must have felt something inside him that said, 50? No, that's asking an awful lot of Lot. 40? 30? 20? Still not feeling confident. 10? Okay, maybe I can hope for 10. In other words... Something about Lot and his situation and what Abraham knew of that situation told him that if he had any hope to save his nephew, he needed to keep that number pretty small. 
That's a testimony, a negative testimony about Abraham, about Lot's uh, influence in that city. And remember, he's been living here for nearly 25 years. It's not for lack of opportunity that he served as a representative of the living God. He knows the living God. He trusts in God's promises. And I think it's fair to say we would have expected a little more from a man who has become so powerful and serves in the gate of the city in Sodom. Peter tells us that Lot was concerned by what he saw. Peter tells us in 2 Peter 2, 7, that if God, if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what Lot saw and heard, that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. So it's not as though Lot was oblivious and wasn't burdened. The issue is, what did he do about it? He was unable to bring any revival of whatever kind to this city. Now, that situation turns out to be even worse than Abraham thought. Abraham thought that maybe he'd get by with ten. Lot has not even been able to influence his own sons-in-laws. The people who should know him best scoff at him when he brings the word of the Lord. Lot's own authority in matters of God and in God's word is so weak that when he does try to bring it, the men laugh him off. As a father, as a husband, as one who has responsibilities to teach in the church and elsewhere, and I have to think about my own situation for a moment and ask myself, what if I brought a word like that in my family? If I had that commission from God, what would the response be from those who know me? Would they wonder? And it's incredible to think about it, right? It's an incredible thing that someone would say something like this. That it, would, it would require a step of faith. It would require that we give thought to the person's character and their knowledge of God's word and their propensity to live it out in their own life. If those things aren't in alignment, then we would have reason to question their claims, and we should. But if they are in alignment, then the onus is on us to respond. But I do ask myself, what would the response be? And if I don't have a confidence in my heart that I could bring the word of God in such a way that others would listen, then I need to take stock of my own life. Where is it that I fall short? What is it that that would cause someone to question whether I have the word of God or not? What a sad commentary on Lot's testimony in this city. And as we said last week, you play with fire and you get burned. And while the world will tolerate us living among it to a degree The price we pay for getting too attached is a severe price. And part of what we pay a price in is our ability to represent God into that world. We lose our testimony. We lose the platform on which we might stand to be a light into that world. Now, I want to say something else concerning Lot and what we might expect out of his influence because we can fault him for his choices and we should. The Bible itself makes clear that Lot did some things wrong. But we have to be careful about assigning him the blame for unbelief among those in the city. Because the state of a person's heart toward God is not something Lot controls, we control, that anyone controls. We cannot say that Lot is responsible for those in the city not knowing the living God. It was not within his power to create faith in their hearts. We can't even set our own heart upon God by our own will, according to Scripture, because we are an enemy of God until such time as God opens our heart and brings us the truth of the gospel. So it's not his responsibility for the unbelief of his sons-in-laws or anyone else. But on the other hand, from our own experience and from the testimony of Scripture, we cannot deny 
God is working through men all the time to bring the truth. That's his chosen method. That's how he prefers to do it. He delights to use our witness. He delights to use our persistence and our heart to reach other people. He wants us to speak the truth in love. He intends to work through that when we give him the opportunity. And we're supposed to go out with the expectation that if we obey, he will work. So just as I can't blame Lot for their unbelief, at the same time, I can't excuse the fact that the city was depraved on the mere fact that God's in control. It's not Lot's fault. What's Lot's fault is that he compromised his witness. What God might have done with a witness in that city, we'll never know because the guy never gave God the opportunity. We don't take credit for new faith, but we cannot pretend that our efforts and our witness are unimportant to God. They work together. So having failed to persuade his sons-in-law, what does Lot do? He runs back to his own house. And what we might assume a guy like Lot would do at this point is say, well, so much for them. Folks, we're going. Pack up and leave. But what does he do? He gets conflicted. I don't know if he's having a self-pity moment. I don't know if this guy is just confused, if he's just the kind of guy not to, not to take action. I have a hard time believing that's who he is because he made his way up to a leadership position in this city. So he has to have some sense of how to get ahead, how to take charge, how to get things done. We know he believes in the promises God has given through these angels. We know he's confident that the destruction of the city is arriving. Otherwise, why would he have gone and talked to his sons-in-law? So it's not as though he doesn't know or doesn't believe or can't take action. Scripture says here he's hesitating. It's almost as if he seems willing to risk his own destruction and the destruction of his family for no particularly good reason. At this point, though, look what comes next. The angels now seeing the hesitation and knowing the hour is short, they turned a lot. They urge him once more. It's now or never, guy. You have to leave now. In fact, the angels tell Lot that the judgment is so imminent, if they don't start leaving immediately, if they don't move now, they'll be caught up in the judgment. They won't have time to get out. This effort, this constant effort, is their mission. Does God need two angels in the form of men walking through the city in order to destroy the city? Well, you get the answer easily enough by just knowing how the actual destruction takes place. It's not by two rampaging angels. It's by heavenly sent fire and brimstone. So here again, why does God go to the trouble to bring the angels down into the city? He already knew it was depraved. He already planned to destroy it. And he doesn't even use them, at least not in the physical sense, to complete the destruction. What are they there for then? This is what they're there for. They are there to move a righteous man out of harm's way. Now, what's remarkable is, with all that they're doing to help him, he's not even willing to help himself. It's hard, I think, to put ourselves in positions like this story, because it is so unusual, so supernatural. But still, our job as a Bible student is to do this very thing, to put ourselves in the place of those in the story and consider our own heart. So if God sent you an angel, and for argument's sake, you knew it was an angel, you're not at all confused or doubting about the word that's coming. So you're confident it's an angel, and therefore you know this is from God. And the angel came to you in the next half hour, and he told you, you cannot go home today. You cannot go to your home, to your business. In fact, don't even go to your car. Just start walking and leave the city. 
with what's on your back. Because the city is about to receive the judgment that you see happening to Sodom, and it's going to be a certain death if you don't take this work. With that in mind, would you hesitate? What would we do? What would you do if you had family in the city? That's the condition Lot's in. It's easy to blame the guy, and he has reason to be blamed for many things. But at this moment, this is Lot's life. Nothing outside the city has any connection to him. It's literally the outer world for him. And the angels are telling him, leave now, walk. What if I gave you that command right now? What would you do? Could you do it? Jesus addressed this very issue, this very heart issue of following and obeying in several places in the Gospels. And and maybe my favorite is in the encounter that he has with that rich young ruler. In Luke 18, 18, it starts like this. The ruler questioned him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one's good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And the ruler said, All these things I've kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. But when the ruler heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. And Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples who heard this said, Well, then who can be saved? And Jesus said, The things that are impossible with people are possible with God. Peter said, Behold, we've left our homes and followed you. And Jesus said to them, Truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times as much as this time and in the age to come eternal life. Now, we could talk all week on this. I did, in fact, in a few years back when we covered Luke, but... The core of it as it applies today is is actually very simple. You have this this guy that's rich and he comes to Christ ostensibly to know how to get to heaven, how to become a participant in the kingdom. But he's sad, it says, when he hears what God is asking him to do. And the sadness could be replaced with the word hesitated. He hesitated. Because he wasn't willing to leave behind the riches that he had acquired in order to obtain the riches of heaven. Now, that's not Christ saying to everybody, you have to be poor to get into heaven. That's not the point. The point is, where is your heart? If God has put before you as a test of your faith to leave something so that you can see for your own sake that it's not the thing to trust in, but only trust in God, and we're unwilling to make that trade, we hesitate, it's an indication, it's a sign that our heart is not where it needs to be. Both an unbeliever and a believer can experience this from two different sides. For the unbeliever, as you see here, it becomes the barrier they're unwilling to cross, and in that case, they prove themselves not willing to follow Christ. But a believer can fall into this trap too, which is what I think we're seeing here with Lot. So much attachment to what we come to believe is important to us in this world that we fail to recognize it is an impediment to our walk with God. And so God is delighted often to reveal that weakness, causing us to have to make those choices. Look what the disciples said. They said, well, who could be saved? What I love about that is it's so transparent, maybe more transparent than they realized, because it says exactly what we're all thinking. 
Not all of us are rich, right? But we all want what we have and then some. And we worry what would happen if we ever didn't have it. We share this same sin no matter how much we possess. And this guy wasn't willing to walk away from it. And so the disciples look at him and think, I'm not sure I could do it either. Who could be saved? And Jesus said, you know what? You're right. If it came down to men's power, no one would make it. Thankfully, though, it's all a matter of God's power. And God can do what men will not. He can cause our hearts to change when we can't see how. And we know Lot had an eye for the finer things in life. That's why the guy is where he is, remember? He's separated from his uncle because he wanted to go to what looked like the good place, the finer valley with all the nice watered fertile land, and that's what he wanted. Then he moved into the city because that's where all the people in the action was. And he wanted those finer things in life. Now he's so attached to it, he's willing to die for it. Can you consider that? A person so attached to the world, they're willing to die for it even though it's passing and will burn up. Peter, look at what Peter says about this same story of Lot in 2 Peter 2, 6. He says, If God condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter, and if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, For by what he saw and heard, that righteous man while living among them felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. That's the lesson, according to Peter, that the Lord could rescue a man like Lot, a man who was attached to the world, oblivious to his own fate, and even unwilling to save himself. Nonetheless, God steps in and does the work for him. And in verse 9, Peter says, this story is proof that God knows how to find a way to rescue the godly while keeping the unrighteous under punishment. But I want you to take note of what the Lord is ready to do here for us, according to Peter. Is he willing to take us out of harm's way? Is he willing to remove the sin in our life? Is he willing to make everything perfect? Well, ultimately, yes, in our glorification, But in this life, no, that is not what he is promising here. Look what he promised to do. In verse 9, rescue the godly from temptation. From temptation. I like to think of it like a freeway. And when you're on the freeway of your life and you're driving in the wrong direction, God puts exit ramps all around you. But you've got to turn the wheel. You've got to take the exit ramp. You've got to take the effort to actually use the, the escape route. Look what Lot is finding himself in here. He's not willing to even walk out of the city. So what does he do next? The angels see that Lot will not save himself, so they take action on his behalf. And the two angels take the four members of Lot's family by the hand and they bring them outside the city. I have to imagine it literally like dragging your dog. I don't know if you have that dog that doesn't like to take a walk. You take him for a drag. It's this kind of a view in my mind. Pulling the guy and his wife and his daughters out of the city. That was their mission. To remove him from temptation. Go back to my example a moment ago that I asked you to consider. I've told you the city's going to be destroyed. I've said get up and leave everything and start walking right now. And you do what we probably all would do. You hesitate. You ask yourself, is it true? But what about this and what about that? And in the midst of all that hesitating... The angel says, I'm done waiting, grabs you by the hand, drags you out, and next thing you know, you're halfway to junction. 
If you've ever been out there, you know what it looks like, right? There's nothing out there. And then he drops you off on the side of the road and he says, now, walk. How much more likely are you to start walking at that point? That's what he means when he says he removes us from temptation. The walk still had to happen. When Lot and his wife and, and daughters are dropped off outside the city, they are still told to escape, for if they stay where they are, they will still die. They're not dragged out from the danger zone. They're dragged out from the temptation zone. And then the walk has to begin nonetheless. Praise the Lord. He remains faithful to his promises even when we are faithless to the one who saved us. Their mission, the angel's mission, was to save the righteous in the city. And Abraham's request didn't ask for this. He asked for something different, but God knew his heart. And even before Abraham prayed, God already had this plan in mind to do exactly what he knew Abraham wanted. And there's no better proof of that fact than the mere detail that there were four people who need to be saved, there were two angels, and they each had two hands. God sent just the number of hands he needed to pull out the number of people he knew would be saved in the end because they were alone the righteous. And he invited Abraham into a discussion about it so that as Abraham felt the need to pray and understood the circumstances, he could see God at work in the way he appealed to God to do the right thing. You know, one of the challenges of understanding this lesson properly is to stay in balance. For while you do want to understand that God is sovereign and he is always working his plan with or without us, you never want to get so far on that side, though, that you start to see this story as an excuse not to pray. I mean, after all, why bother? God's got it all figured out. He doesn't need me. I mean, there's a danger in this if you're not careful. What did Abraham accomplish in his prayer? He didn't change the Lord's plan to destroy the city. That was always the plan, and it came to pass. Now, the Lord did make an agreement, though. He said, if I find ten, I'll save the city. But he didn't find ten. So the city is destroyed. And on the other hand, Abraham wanted Lot saved. And the Lord did that. Though Abraham didn't ask for it, he received it nonetheless. Think about the wisdom of God to work through prayer. He knows what we want. He's always prepared to do the right thing. He never changes his mind. And yet he allows us to participate with him in such a way that we see our prayers answered. How does he do that all? And more importantly, why does he do that? The whole time the purpose in our prayer stays the same. To train us up in the understanding of God, in his character and in his nature and in his plans. And our prayers are not trivial. And our prayers are not meaningless. And they are effective and righteous work, according to James. But their first and primary work is in our heart. Because had Abraham never been invited into this moment, he never would have had thoughts about what God is prepared to do for the righteous versus the unrighteous. He is still yet to learn what will happen, of course. We're not yet done with the story. But we can already see how God is orchestrating this. Back on the story I told a couple of weeks ago about the son and the father in the garage. When you take a young child and you encourage them to join you in work and you invite them in, even though they make the work harder and slower and, and all the things we've already talked about. When it's over and the work's been finished, the child starts to just beam with pride over the work they did. They come to the other parent and they say, Mom or Dad, I fixed the car. The father there standing behind the son just smiles, right? doesn't say to the son, oh, no, wait a minute here, son. Let's get this straight. Dad did the work. 
No. Why would he do that? It would ruin it all. It would completely defeat the purpose of it. And mom, when she hears the young child saying, oh, I fixed the car. What does the mom say? Good. Thank you. Dad needed the help. It's healthy. It's good. It's showing the child the value of working with the father. Never even realizing that in the course of that moment, that child learned more about the father than they did about the car. And the car was going to get fixed anyway. But it's a lot better to fix it with somebody. That's what God's doing all the time through our prayer. That's what he's doing here in Lot's family and with Abraham. Let's go to Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, help us to join in your work. Help us to see you at work. Help us to know you are at all times at work. Help us to hear you when you invite us in. Help us not to be so attached to this world that we would hesitate to join you or to follow you in anything you ask. Help us, Father, to learn more about you as we seek to serve you. Let us never let our pride, Father, convince us that it's all about the work or about our supporting you or accomplishing what we do. Let us be good and faithful servants, Father, ones who care to do our work in a good way, in an excellent way, to honor our Lord, but yet never take the work as the point, Father. We're there to serve you, and I thank you so much that you give us an account like this story so that we might be reminded through it of how you work to build us up and that the, the real work of this church and of every church, Father, is to edify the believer, to equip them for the service that they might provide to others and in your name. We never get in our minds, Father, it's about the work. The work's important, but only as a means to an end, and we know that. But help our pride, Father, never to be in the way. We just ask you these things, Father, because we do want that experience. We want to see things happening and accomplish great things for your namesake. But we desire it mostly because we want to grow in our knowledge of you and in our likeness of Christ. Thank you, Father, for this great Christmas season in which we can... Enjoy so many wonderful things, but let us, Father, take the enjoyment of being a son of the living God, most of all. One who will always have you and enjoy you, Father, and serve you. Thank you for Oak Hill Bible Church and all the men and women who serve here, Father, and every week the chance to gather. Let it never end until the day of our Lord's return. And may we see more join us as you may permit. Give us a good week as we represent you to the world. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.